0: Well, thanks very much for coming out and uh, spending some time with me this, uh, this evening. This is actually my favorite part of the job that I get to do is to answer questions. Hopefully, um, people will be, um, have temerity enough and the, the gumption enough to stand up and go to these microphones and ask your questions. I hope you do that. Uh, I really much prefer to actually go right into uh, the microphones and look look you dead in the eye and answer your question on a personal level. I hope we can do that. Uh, but I will if you have more questions. I'm sure that the text messaging will uh, will will work out okay. But I do want to go through some of these text messages first, and then um, we can get into some of your personal questions. So while I'm answering those, if you'd like to avoid the sort of awkward silence, feel free to come with the microphones now. Um, uh, that way, we can get right into the questions uh, without having to wait for um, you to walk up to it. Um, so here's, uh, the first one is the one that I think, if you, who was who at the service today, this morning? Virtually everybody. Um, so the question that everyone wants to know, this is the burning question, I know is the top, probably the top question I get is, why is your last name Murray? No, I'm kidding, that's, <laughs> that, I get that question. But uh, the, 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 the short answer to that one, by the way, is people just, they just anglicized it for us when we came over. It's mir'i, but uh, they said, that sounds like Murray to me, so they wrote that down. So no, I'm Lebanese and Scottish, uh, which means, <laughs> it means that I fight with everybody. Um, uh, no, but uh, the question is, is you know, how did my folks deal with uh, my conversion, and how did that go? Uh, everyone wanted to know the answer to that. You'll notice something about my speech this morning. I talked this morning, my testimony this morning. I didn't share that on purpose. Um, and it wasn't just to be a teaser, like, what happened? Oh my goodness, cliffhanger. I didn't do that. What I did was, is I, I wanted to share my story because you understand all of this is always about everybody else as well. There's no one, no man is an island, as they say. And this certainly wasn't the case with my family. So being from the East and being from the Middle East, family stuff is very, very personal. And so I'm not going to share a whole lot of detail about that. I hope you can understand that and forgive me if I've left you hanging on this. I can tell you it wasn't a party. They didn't throw a party for me. Uh, it was rough, but I was blessed with an extremely close and strong family before I became a Christian. And I'm blessed to have a strong and close family after I became a Christian. So it didn't go well, uh, but how could it? You know, how would we expect that? Um, If my kids were to tell me, hey, I'm becoming a Buddhist, I I wouldn't take that well. Um, But I would take it in stride. I've learned some lessons about how to handle these kind of situations from what happened with me. Um, What I can tell you is that, you know, I told my parents at 7.30 at night about my conversion. And um, we didn't get done with the very long, very emotional talk until 9.30 Saturday morning. Um, No breaks. No one went to the bathroom. None of that. Um, 14 hours of it. And... um, I'll let you fill in the blanks from there, but God is good, and he blessed me with a wonderful family that I have really um, just a deep affection for, and we see all the time. Uh, They're still Muslims. Uh, I'm still a Christian, and so are my wife and my kids, but um, we're very close and very much uh, in a loving relationship with each other, so thank you for asking. Uh, Please do pray for us. Uh, to continue to pray for us um, as well. Just, I thank you very much for that. So that's the first one. <laughs> um, the, the second one I want to get to um, is probably the most frequently asked question that our team gets around the world or the most frequently asked theme we're asked to speak on around the world outside of you know that question I just got. Um, and it's, it has to do with the problem of pain and suffering. Uh, in fact, it was asked immediately after I was speaking today, someone had asked me this question, you know, I'm a believer, but how do I talk about or even express the idea that a good God exists when there's so much of pain and suffering in the world? Um, And it's a a valid question, it's a deep question, it's a hard question, it's one we can't gloss over. But let me just say this to you. The reality is that if you were to look at professional philosophers, okay, they'll tell you, whether they're Christians or atheists or anything in between. They'll tell you the so-called logical problem of evil, as it was called, is no longer a problem. That's been dealt with, actually. Most philosophers working today, in fact, I would say the vast majority, would say there is no logical incompatibility with a God who is all good and all powerful and the existence of evil. And the reason is, is because when you think about it logically speaking, what you have to say is that there can be no justification, God can have no justification whatsoever for allowing evil to exist for a greater possible good. But you and I can't possibly say that there's no justification because we don't know everything that a God like that, if he existed, would know. So it can't be logically impossible. There might be morally sufficient reasons for God to allow suffering for a greater good if he's all-powerful, all-knowing, and these kinds of things. So that's sort of gone by the wayside. But what has remained is what's called the probabilistic or the emotional problem of evil. Why is there so much of it? It's one thing to allow some, but why do you allow this much? That's a different question. It's a far different question. You know, I was sitting. Uh, I'll give the, the answer that I often give in the context of a conversation I had with an atheist friend of mine. Now, um, when we were in school together, we were very, we were close. We were close, and I was a Muslim then, and he was uh, an atheist, and um, <clears throat> we didn't talk about matters of faith very much, which is weird for me because I talk about it with everybody, but not him. For some reason, we just didn't talk about it. Uh, so he went his way, and I went my way, and then he was coming into town. Uh, for business, and he calls me up and he says, hey, Abdul, I'm coming to town for business. Uh, pick the fanciest restaurant in, in Detroit you can find. We'll expense it, and we'll have a great time catching up. And I said, great, if you pay, I'll pray. And he's like, okay, fine. Um, he sort of rolled his eyes over the phone. Uh, I could hear them ro- his, his eyes rolling. Um, so we got together, and we had a great time. And as we sat down uh, for dinner, we got into things, you know, like family and career and all that stuff. And he wanted to know how I became a Christian because the reason he found out I was a Christian was that he went to my wedding, which was only a few years before that, and he discovered something was different. He's like, I think something happened because we're at a church. Um, and he's praying in Jesus' name while, we're, while, he, while he's uh, saying his vows and all this stuff. So he's like, being a sharp guy, he's like, something's different. Um, so he wanted to know how that happened. So I told him all the philosophical and all these things, reasons, and he's like, look, my, my problem is this. How can I believe in a God who is all-powerful and all-good if there's so much evil and suffering in the world? Because if he was all-powerful, he would be able to stop the suffering. If he was all-good, he would want to stop the suffering, but the suffering still exists. So either he's not all-good or he's not all-powerful, or more likely, he's not even there. That's like dinner conversation. Um, so I began, we begin to go into it. Now, one of the things you have to notice here is this, is that when you make the statement that there is so much evil and suffering in the world, whether it's from human interaction. You know, there's a moral evil, like I do something terrible to someone else. Someone robs someone, someone murders someone, genocides are committed. You're talking about a moral evil. And so you're positing the existence of an objective morality. You're already saying there's gotta be an objective morality because what you're saying is, As a matter of fact, not a matter of human opinion, it is wrong to kill people without justification. That's what we're saying. And we're saying it's not based on human opinion, which is the very definition of objective. If it was subjective, it would be based on human opinion. And since we believe in objective values, although not all of us do, but when you posit this problem, you say there's so much suffering and evil, what you're saying is is that there's gotta be an objective moral standard. Now you can say, well, let's take the realm of human beings out of it. Let's say volcanoes. How about tsunamis? How about you know, plate tectonics and the movements of the tectonic plates that cause earthquakes? And people die from natural disasters. There's no moral agency involved in that at all. That seems to be a terrible evil or a, or, or, and suffering, so that seems wrong as well. Ah, but you see what's happened here, is that all you've done is remove human agency from the problem, but you've still included human suffering. Ravi puts it this way, the problem of evil is always a personal problem because it's either asked by a person or about a person. So it's always personal. So it's always moral, whether it's plate tectonics and volcanoes or rape and murder. Always. So in every instance, when you posit the problem of evil and suffering, you are always positing the existence of an an objective moral value. Evil being the privation or the perversion of the good. So you're assuming evil, therefore you assume good. The only way that good and evil as categories can actually exist on an objective level is if those things exist apart from human opinion. Because if they're based on human opinion, then they're subjective. Do we see that so far? So, here's the classic example is this. In this country, it was legal to own people as property. It was legal, and the majority of people for a long time, not always, but for a long time, thought it was perfectly moral to own people. Was it? No. Even when everybody thought it was okay, it wasn't okay. Evil is still evil, even if everyone believes it. And good is still good, even if no one believes it. So these are objective truths, which means they have to transcend human existence. Now, here's the problem. Where do you find these things then? Plato talked about this. This was something that the the ancient philosophers talked about all the time. Where do you find morality? Where is it? Uh, Plato called them the forms. The, 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 The morality existed out there. Like he thought that good existed apart from God. Like, oh, there's goodness, and the gods are subjected to goodness. But the problem is this. Good can't be just out there. I mean, think about it. There goes goodness, look how goodness goodness is being. Or look how just justice is being. Or look how kind kindness is. They don't do anything, these are abstract concepts. So an abstract concept can't do anything, which means that if goodness exists, it violates itself because it can't live up to its own standard. Rather, morality only makes sense if it's rooted in persons. See, chairs aren't good. Air isn't good. The number seven isn't good or bad, but persons are good or bad. So follow me on this. If you need a transcendent source for morality and transcendent morality needs to be rooted in a person, it can only be rooted in a transcendent person. Who does that sound like? That sounds like God. So the problem of evil doesn't disprove God's existence, the problem of evil actually proves God's existence. Because anytime you're talking about the things in the world that are wrong with it, you have to realize that there is a straight line by which you measure all the bent ones, to quote C.S. Lewis. That's the first level. So I, my friend and I were talking, about okay, I kind of get that, that's fine. But then the conversation changed. You see, he went on a different tack, and I said, well, one of the ways you can actually talk about suffering as well is that if God exists, then he must be a being, the God, the God I'm talking about, and here's the thing, too. People often start at this problem with a misconception of God. They're challenging a conception of God that Christians have never held to, that God is somehow helpless, or God knows stuff, but if he, could, if he did know stuff, he wouldn't... Uh, he wouldn't do the things he does he's kind of like zeus or like artemis or whatever it is and that just doesn't jibe with the christian message so i told my friend essentially what i believe and what the bible teaches that god is is god is the necessary being he is the being from whom all other things find their existence he is the source of all being And he also is the source of all knowledge and truth. So if that kind of a God exists, you have to prove that it's logically impossible for that God to exist and suffering exist. So here's the problem, is that if the God that I believe in exists, then he's a God who knows everything. He knows all past things. He knows all present things. He knows all future things. And he knows all future possible things. What in philosophy is called a counterfactual. So, I'll give you an example of what I mean. You could have chosen not to come here. You could have decided, you know what, I want to go get dinner in a movie and I'd rather not hear that guy again. You could have chosen that. And from that decision, a billion other things would have occurred. Billions of things would have occurred. You could have got indigestion. You could have had an argument on the way to the restaurant. You could have gotten in a car accident. You could have stopped somebody who needed help. You might have. Uh, said something nice to the waitress what it would affected her day and her day would have been changed when she went home and talked to her husband and they would have, had, they would have made up and their marriage would have got saved. Who knows what would have happened? A billion things would have happened and that's one decision one person makes. So God knows all the decisions and all the counterfactual decisions, the ones you could have made but didn't. So he knows all that spiderweb of future history. So isn't it possible, I ask my friend, that a God who knows all of that could have a morally sufficient reason to allow, not cause, but allow some instance of suffering to happen in our lives for a greater possible good that we have no ability with our limited finite minds to know about. It might become obvious to us in five minutes, or 50,000 years, or in the eternity to come, but isn't it at least possible? The first thing he said was no. I'm like, well, that's a, I, I spent all that time. No, that's your answer? Um, <laughs> Uh, But he said, no, no, the tsunami that happened in 2004, remember that tsunami that wiped out a quarter of a million people and left millions homeless? He's like, how can you possibly say that? That tsunami results in a greater possible good. I said, here's the problem with your answer, is that what you're telling me is you know with 100% certainty, there is no possible future where there is something better that could come about because of that tragedy. So you're claiming to have infinite knowledge of the future. And if you're claiming to have infinite knowledge of the future, you're using your infinite knowledge of the future to disprove the existence of a being who has infinite knowledge of the future. Do you see how self-defeating that actually is? And he agreed. And that's when the conversation really shifted. You know, by this time, the waitresses stopped serving us the coffee. Um, And we were the only ones left in the restaurant. And he looks up at me from the cold coffee with sort of a mist gathering in front of his eyes. And he says, I want to know this. How can you tell me this God values me or my mother and that he's good when he let her die when I was 10? See, the philosophical rubber meets the existential road at this particular moment, doesn't it? It's not an academic question anymore. In fact, it never was, never was. So what do you do at that moment? Well, um, I prayed quick, and I asked the Lord to give me something that that would be true and relevant to his pain. See, here's the problem. He was 10 when that happened, he was 38 when he asked me. 28 years of atheism did not clear up the tears. It never gave him fulfillment, because if Dawkins is right, Richard Dawkins is right, the leading one of the most prominent atheists in the world, he says, the universe is blind, pitiless, and indifferent. There is no such thing as evil or good, no design, no purpose. All we have is meaningless tragedies and meaningless good fortune. So her death was not a tragedy, it was a meaningless tragedy. He offers him no comfort whatsoever. So you can live with that, or you can suggest the alternative. So I said this to him, I said, you know, we've been talking for a while now and you agreed that God could allow suffering for a greater possible good. You agreed, that's possible. He said, yeah, because he was waiting for me to use his mother as a punchline to our philosophical argument. I said, you know what, it's a nice theory. A Christian can tell you that, an atheist, uh, uh, sorry, a Muslim can tell you that, a Buddhist can tell you that, a Hindu can tell you that, some some Hindus, uh, some, you know, they, they can tell you this. God works in mysterious ways. It's a nice theory. But you've experienced a terrible loss. I have no idea what it feels like to experience that loss. I've lost people, but never someone so close to me, especially at such a tender age. I can't imagine. He called it a life-shaping moment. Of course it was. But here's what I want to offer you. That theory is valid, but that's all it is, unless it's backed up by history. And contra to Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, any other ism and schism you can think of, contra to all those worldviews, I don't have a mere theory that gives me a mere glimpse of hope. I have actual fact to back up that God could allow suffering for a greater possible good because God did allow suffering for the greatest possible good. He let his own son die, not for some theoretical good but for the greatest good there could possibly be the salvation of the entire world he offers that to you i said and he offered that to your mother then you asked me one other question you asked me the question about value you said how can i know that god values me or my mother how do you know how valuable anything is how do you know it's not it's not rocket science really you know there's these wonderful things in my house all these you know these pictures my kids draw uh, when they were kids, and they you, you say, oh, how beautiful. It's not really, but you say it is because it's your kid, and you put it on the, and it's like a bad Picasso, and you put it on your refrigerator and all this, and they write you little notes, and my wife sent me stuff, and my wedding video, and my, and my wedding pictures, all valuable. But if there's a fire in my house, I'm getting my wife and my kids, and we're getting out, and I'm not going to save those things. They're all going to burn or melt or whatever, because I'm not going to make my wife a widow or my kids fatherless over those things. I value them, but not that much. But if my wife or my, ch- or my kids are in that house, you better believe it. I will risk everything to save them. You know how valuable something is by what you're willing to pay for it. And a blind, pitiless, indifferent universe does not pay for you. But the immeasurable God paid an immeasurable price to spend an immeasurable eternity with your mother and with you. You can know that you have an objective, immeasurable value because of that. You see, so friends, pain, is the signal of value. If you were to go to any other worldview, any other worldview, and they would tell you what is pain all about, a Muslim would tell you it's just just a test. It's a test of your faith. When you lose a child, when you lose someone, when you are injured, it's a test to see are you going to blame God or whatever it is. And there's a validity to that to a point. But when that's all it is, it seems awfully cruel. A Hindu would tell you it's your karma It's the bad karma from a previous life coming to revisit upon you. But you have to realize something, friend. It's all an illusion. See, you're the divine being. A Buddhist would say the same thing, that all pain is an illusion, and you need to wake up from the illusion of the reality you're living in because it's not really real. And then when you get rid of that illusion, you'll be free of pain and suffering and all these things. And an atheist would say basically, tough, get over it. don't have to tell you. The problem is, is none of those things deals with the real issue, does it? Just a test, it seems cruel. If it's an illusion, if, you, if, you're, if your suffering is an illusion, then the person you lost meant nothing. I mean, can you imagine losing someone and then feeling nothing about it? Then that person meant nothing. But if you feel the deep anguish of pain, that means that person actually meant something to you. Pain is the signal of value. That's why you can know you have value because God himself, in a world where suffering exists, suffers himself for your sake. My buddy looked at me and he said, it's a lot to think about, but man, that's worth believing. So pain and suffering I don't think are meaningless. If there's no God than they are, but I think that you can see that God actually does allow suffering. I can trust that God has allowed suffering in any one of our lives because God did allow suffering in his own existence for a greater good. We can trust him in that. Why does he allow your particular suffering? I have no idea. I would be insulting you if I told you I knew why. I don't know why he allows mine. But the good news is, is that because of the suffering he went through, I'll have an eternity to find out. And so will you. And I really can't give you more comfort than that other than to say, there's nowhere else you can go. a better answer than that. So uh, with that I don't know if anybody else has a question that come to the microphone but let's uh, let's get into the microphone. Is this thing on? (laughs)
1: I've been thinking about this question all day. Um,
0: Oh boy let's do it let's hear it.
1: Well I saw you today and you gave one of the better talks I've ever seen on any subject so I want to congratulate you for that.
0: Oh great. Next question, please. No. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Thank you.
1: Um, and this might not be popular in the room, uh, but I... No, I can't uh, wait to hear
0: it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, I travel the state of Virginia and the state of West Virginia for a living, and I listen to the radio, and I'm a Howard Stern fan. Sorry if you don't like Howard Stern. Howard was born a Jew. Mm-hmm. He was bar Mitzvah but he says God is the magic man in the sky. Mm-hmm. That when you die, you're dead. That that's it. That's all. So my question is, your talk today was fantastic about believing the Koran or the Bible, yep. but what about going back to basics and saying, how do you believe there is a God at all?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, excellent question. Uh, fantastic question. Let me, let me uh, take off from what Howard Stern's position is. I, I, I do know that he is uh, an atheist, a very vocal atheist at that, and he thinks religion is a crutch for the weak. Yeah. He thinks it's basically an emotional crutch that allows you to, people who are afraid of death, to actually deal with yeah. death. Um, Uh, It's interesting that he says that, so let me just back up. Let me answer that part first, and then I'll back, back into the belief in God in the first place. When someone says that faith is just a crutch for those who are weak to deal with their fear of death, I find this fascinating because if I actually thought there was nothing after my life, I would fear no death because I wouldn't know it when I'm dead. I wouldn't have judgment afterwards. There'd be no such thing as judgment to follow. So I would eat, drink, and be merry, as I suspect someone like him does, because there's nothing coming. So if that's the case, and if rational people, and he has to admit, there are people who are believers in God who are rational people. Isaac Newton wasn't an idiot. And he believed strongly in God. John Lennox, one of my colleagues, has double doctorates in mathematics from Oxford and Cambridge. Not a moron. Believes in God. So obviously rational people believe in God. Now if they rationally thought, well, this is just a crutch for my fear of death. Why would you have fear of death if nothing comes after it? You're not going to know it. You're not going to be like, man, this is terrible. Cuz you're not even going to exist. I would have no fear of anything if I knew that my existence was but a vapor and that I'm gone and there's nothing to follow it. So I think that this charge proves too much. I also think this I think that oftentimes atheistic thinking is equally or even more of a crutch than belief in God. Because if I actually have a belief in God and an objective morality and an objective moral standard that I know I fall short on, that wouldn't give me sort of this, oh man, I have freedom to do whatever I want, whenever I want. That would give me a sense of, I have to conform my will to that of the divine, It imposes more obligation on me. In other words, it makes my life harder, not easier. So a crutch is supposed to make your life easier. But religion makes your life a little bit tougher. So it's not a crutch. Denying God exists allows you to pursue, as Aldous Huxley said, every erotic passion. So ask me, which one is the crutch? Sounds to me like lack of belief is the crutch. Because you get to do whatever you want. And you are the God of your own skull-sized world. And what better crutch is there than to make yourself the creator of all the universe and your own little skull-sized world? That sounds a little more like a crutch to me than belief in God. I just don't buy that. I never have bought that. And I see a fundamental contradiction in this philosophy. Now, the question then becomes, if it's a crutch or not, it doesn't matter. We all need a crutch. All of us need a crutch of some kind because... Howard Stern, I presume, and people like him, have relationships. They have people they, that are in their lives, people who support them. He's not strong enough or smart enough or brilliant enough to, have, to be able to put on his radio show without a producer, without people in the, in, in the audience, without technology. Everyone needs something. He needs something for his life, and every atheist needs someone in their life. I simply need one more person, and that person happens to be the transcendent creator of all the, all the universe. Um, So we all need a crutch of some kind. Sigmund Freud once said that um, people believe in the sky daddy, the magical guy in the sky, because they have to get over their their earthly daddy issues, so they invent a perfect father to get over their inadequacies of their earthly father. So they invent a heavenly father to get over their earthly father. And I often wondered, I wonder if the opposite's true for Sigmund Freud, because he had daddy issues too, quite a few. I wonder if he rejected a heavenly father because he didn't like his earthly father. I could it's whipsaw. So this logic doesn't actually hold. You might feel that way, but you can't prove it. So the first thing is, this idea of a crutch is that religion, if it's a crutch, it's a terrible one in terms of making your life easier to get over your fears. Um, atheism seems to be a panacea to wave it all away. The second thing is that everyone needs a crutch of some kind. And the question isn't, do you have a crutch? The question is, what is your crutch made of? Is it made of matchsticks, or is it made of titanium? And I would suggest that belief in God is made of titanium because there's good reasons to believe it. Here's why. We all exist. I mean, there's some fundamental principles you can't deny. Everybody is here. You're all thinking. You're all hearing sounds. You're all feeling things. You're all sitting in chairs. The reason why you're here is because matter, energy, space, and time all exist. Standard Big Bang cosmology says that the universe began to exist all matter energy space and time began to exist at a finite point in the past now i know christians are super afraid of this word you know the big bang theory not the tv show but the actual theory Um, so they're afraid of this theory because they think it disproves god it doesn't disprove a thing in fact for the longest time scientists thought before uh, uh, um, einstein and hubble and all these guys were talking about redshift and relativity and then uh, the big bang theory Scientists thought the universe was eternal. We didn't need God to explain our existence because the universe was always here. Carl Sagan says the universe is all that there ever was, all that there ever is, and all there ever will be. Well, we find out, not true. The universe actually began to exist. Matter, energy, space, and time all began to exist at a finite point in the past. Now, what does that mean? Things can't create themselves. That's logically impossible. So I would ask an atheist, how do you explain the creation of the universe based on the fact that we know, with all the certainty we have, we can muster in terms of scientific theories, that it began to exist? Things that begin to exist must have a cause. And the cause can't be themselves because they weren't around to cause themselves. Nothing does no things. So if there was nothing, it couldn't have created everything because that's just logically silly. So if we're trying to be logical, let's go back and say, so what could have created all matter, all energy, all space, and all time? The thing that creates all matter, energy, space, and time must be an immaterial being because there was no matter, must be a a, a being with more energy, more power than the collective energy of the entire universe, must be a spaceless being because there was no space, and must be a timeless being because he created time in the first place. What does an immaterial, enormously powerful, spaceless, and timeless being sound like? Sounds dangerously close to the idea of God. So the very fact of our existence already screams for a creative force outside of the universe itself, that's one. But then, it's not just that a creative force happens, is that something made choices. This world could have been any configuration, yet this universe is created so that life can exist. It's what's called fine tuning. And this is not a controversial topic. Most scientists will tell you, whether atheist or not, will tell you that the universe is finely tuned for life to exist. So I'll give you a couple examples of what I mean. We're in what's called the Goldilocks zone. Every scientist who studies cosmology and astronomy will tell you we're in the Goldilocks zone. Our planet happens to be in exactly the right spot it needs to be, not too far away, not too close to a sun that's exactly the size and exactly the kind that it needs to be so that our planet is warm enough so that life can begin on this planet and flourish on this planet with just enough liquid water so that life can flourish on this planet. We also are in the neighborhood of a gas giant, Jupiter, a huge planet that is not as big as our sun but quite large itself that has such a gravitational pull that it pulls us away from our sun but not so far that we're too cold, too close to Jupiter, because our sun is big enough in proportion to Jupiter that we're just far enough away from Jupiter that we're not too warm. So it pulls us right in exactly where we need to be. And all the other planets in our system pull on us and keep us exactly where we need to be so life can exist on this planet. But that gas giant does far more than just pull us away from the sun. It actually pulls in large cosmic debris like asteroids and meteorites that would otherwise destroy life on this planet. So that thing happens to be, just happens to be big enough and far enough away to keep us safe? And then our moon, our moon is disproportionately large compared to its planet. To, to its, planet. it's one moon that's just the right size that allows for various gravitational pulls and tides and shifts in, in the oceans and other things that allows us to have life on this planet. So there's a lot of things like this. There's so many things like this that um, one scientist who's not a Christian said it looks like someone's been monkeying with the physics. Then you couple the fact that we look inside from telescopes to microscopes. You look inside and you see that there are 3.1 billion bits of information in human DNA. 3.1 billion bits of information. There are graduate libraries at some of our universities that don't have that much information in them. The entire library doesn't even have that much information. And your DNA strand, one DNA strand in your body, and you have trillions upon trillions, has that much information in it. How come all the journal articles and all the books and all the things written in those libraries are written by fine minds, but this one's an accident? Seems unlikely. Now I was at a um, an open forum, and a young man, uh, a friend of mine, was doing a great job of talking about science and faith. And um, uh, during the Q and joined him for Q and A. And a young guy got up in the back and said, "You know, my problem with religion is is that it, it stops all scientific discovery. It suggests that oh you know, God did it, so let's not even uh, uh, try to get an explanation. We'll just plug God into the gaps of our knowledge, and then we'll move on." I'm like, "Well, I don't know one Christian who thinks that way." Um, but. Let me ask you a question. Um, Why do you think that? Where in the Bible do you see any suggestion that we shouldn't engage in scientific endeavor? Because when we do, Proverbs 25, verse 2, actually says it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. It is the glory of kings to seek things out. God conceals things so that we delight in the discovery of what he's concealed about the universe and about himself. So it's actually encouraging science. So here's the thing I said. If you assume there's no designer... If you assume there's no designer, then you are going to look at things like DNA and think this is an accident. So only about 4% of our DNA codes for proteins. In other words, it makes life, it it replicates proteins. So everyone thought the other 96% of it is actually what's called junk DNA. And they say, well, because of evolution, you see all these byproducts of uh, evolutionary chains from previous ancestors and all this junk in our genome because it's all an accident. We don't need those anymore, but it's appended. It's like like an appendix in your body. It doesn't have any purpose. Well, all this junk DNA doesn't have any purpose, and so there's so much of it because we've been evolving for so long. So if you assume there's no designer, you'll assume that DNA is full of junk and only a little part of it actually does anything. Do you follow so far? So the assumption that there is no God prevented us from deciding whether or not that that so-called junk DNA actually has a purpose. But someone comes along, it's called the ENCODE project, and they're like, maybe it does have a purpose. And they begin to look into it, and they find out more and more that the genome, the part of the genome that we thought didn't have a purpose was just junk, actually makes possible the encoding of proteins that the other 4% can do. It's got tons of function, and we're seeing it more and more and more. So I asked him, I said, so let me ask you, if we, assumed that a designer actually designed DNA, maybe we would have looked into DNA earlier and found all these wonderful functions to it instead of assuming there was no designer and ignoring it. Tell me now, who's the science stopper? So I think this is important for us because the universe's existence cries out for a cause. The choices that were made cries out for a God who actually makes decisions and then... I think the reality of morality, so I look at someone like a Howard Stern whose, whose heritage is Jewish, and I were to ask him, if I were to ask him this question, you die and that's it, okay? Let's assume that's true. Then Mother Teresa, who gave her life in service to the children of India, got the exact same reward, oblivion, that Adolf Hitler did when he sacrificed the lives of six million Jews in service of himself. So in your world, Justice is an illusion. Are you comfortable with that? So the reality of morality also screams out for God. So I think the universe, I think morality, I think the existence of a rational mind. There's many, many reasons to believe in God. And I think the Christian God specifically I think is the evidence of the resurrection. I, I won't go into that necessarily because that's not a question on offer right now, but there's wonderful reasons to believe that Jesus not only died, but that he rose from the dead, not as a matter of mere hope, but of actual verifiable history. And I have debates on YouTube, you can see about that as well. So that's what I would say to him. And you know why I would say that to someone like him? is because I think there are things he cares about. I think he cares about justice. I think he does care about um, doing the right thing and all these kind of things. Whether he does the right thing is another issue altogether. But nothing he cares about actually matters if there's no God. But if there is a God, then the things we, we care about and the things we do actually do matter. And there is a justice and there is a mercy in the world to come. It's an excellent question. Thank you so much for that. I appreciate it. Yep. Yep.
2: Many Christians have different interpretations of the Bible and how it relates to science. Considering the uh, the extensive genetic and species diversity in the world today, as well as the extensive number of species that have gone extinct in the past, how could Noah's Ark have had enough space to house and feed all of the different types of animals on the earth? Mm -hmm. And more generally, how should our current understanding of science relate to how we interpret the Bible considering cultural and historical context?
0: That is a very well stated and thought out question. Wow. Thank you for that by the way, that's a great question. What's your name? Ryan, Ryan. okay. Ryan, um, uh, this question is fraught with um, some controversy over a long period of time about you know, age of the earth stuff and all that kind of thing. So I wanna go back and understand when we look at the way the Bible actually talks about the creation of the universe and the creation of the world, clearly Genesis, the first 11 chapters of Genesis is telling a story that is meant to be history. It's not meant to be just allegory or, or, you know, good ideas. But it's not only history. It's also sort of what they call mytho-history. It's not a myth. Don't get me wrong. When you think of the word myth, you think of fable like Robin Hood or, um, you know, uh, dragons and unicorns. That's not what classically the word myth actually means. Um, you can use myth. It, it, it's telling truths in a transcendent and true way. But they also are rooted in um, language that's sort of expansive and loose. It's not meant to be scientifically, sort of according to Hoyle, this is exactly how things happen. But the Bible does, in fact, describe the creation of the universe in a systematic and, I think, uh, co- cogent way. Um, when it comes to Noah's Ark, for example, now, this is the question you're pitting, uh, opposing to us, pits evolutionary theory versus sort of creationism against each other. Um, So, how I would look at it this way first, the way the Bible is actually written doesn't say how God created life it says that god created life and he created two people literally two people historical people adam and eve he did in fact create them there's really no way to get around that you can't say they were a figurative uh pair or they meant to represent us they were the first humans out of many and i don't think that that that, that flies with the biblical interpretation so you're stuck with a historical adam and eve I think there's actually good scientific reasons to believe in a historical Adam and Eve. Um, In fact, um, William Lane Craig and um, uh, an Indian fellow whose name is escaping me right now, a population geneticist, is actually working on mathematical models to prove that it's actually quite plausible to see that we actually did come from two people. And he's not a Christian, by the way. And so they're working on this together. Uh, Fascinating stuff. Wait for that to come out, because I think that'll help you with your question as well. But the Bible doesn't describe how God brought all this about. He says things like, let the earth bring forth, bring forth vegetation and all these things. Well, it comes from the earth. He could have made trees and just threw them out on the ground, and they could have sprouted right then and there. He says, let the earth do it. So we're left with some ambiguity about this. So we know God did it. He is the agency. He is the cause of all these things. But we don't know exactly what the Bible means when it says how he did it. There are some indications of how, but we don't know exactly how which means that as a Christian, I am left open to the evidence wherever it leads. I don't have to have a wooden literal interpretation of the Bible that hems me into the corner where if the science starts to come against what I say, now I'm stuck in a pickle or in the corner. The Bible allows a wide berth of understanding. Go where the evidence leads. So now here's where I think uh, we, the, the rub is. Do we interpret the Bible in light of science Or do we allow science to progress and rest on a solid, what's called the hermeneutical principle, understanding the Bible in the the sense in which it was intended for the people it was intended and understand it correctly that way. See, if we interpret the Bible in light of science, we're gonna run into problems. And the problem is not contradiction with science. The problem is science changes all the time, all the time. So for example, we once thought that the earth was the center of the, ga- of the solar system. Not true. We now know that the Earth revolves around the sun, not the other way around. Now, if we had interpreted the Bible, and there's no real reason why you should interpret the Bible to say that the Earth is the center of the solar system, but if we had stuck to a wooden literal interpretation of that and said, oh, through the science, it backs it up, then when the science changed, well, now what do we do? Now we change the Bible's interpretation? What if the science changes again? And it does all the time. Evolution is a theory in crisis, to quote Michael Denton, A evolutionary biologist. It's a theory in crisis. And so if we start to interpret the Bible based on evolutionary theory, we're going to find that there are serious problems because um, there are quite a few reasons to be skeptical of the evolutionary story, of the macroevolutionary story. That um, of speciation, that we started from common ancestry and that there was variation of the species one to another, such that one species begat another species begat another species, and all these things. And so we would see speciation, and therefore, um, uh, uh, you know, evolutionary things happened over time and we changed over time. That theory is in crisis because Darwin suspected, and we should suspect, that there would be massive amounts of transitional forms in the fossil record. There aren't any. There are these things which are intermediate forms, but they're not transitional forms, Archaeopteryx and other things, but they're not really transitional forms. A transitional form is a a form of life that looks like its its parents or its ancestors and resembles a future one that we find out later. None, we don't have any. You'd expect to see millions. So let's let's say you found four. You should see millions. You should see millions upon millions of them. In fact, you'd expect to see more transitional forms than you would see final forms because the transitions happen over millions of years. And the final forms would be a small subset of those forms. We only see final forms. We don't see transitional forms. So I'm highly skeptical of the evolutionary paradigm, even though the Bible allows me to be open to the evidence, I'm highly skeptical of the evidence because it's not forthcoming. If it gets here, Okay, let's talk about it, but it ain't here yet, so I'm not all that worried. Now the question about Noah and the ark, there's two ways to look at this, okay? One way is to look at it that there was a worldwide flood and that it wiped out life all over the world. So let's say you interpret the Bible to say that there was a worldwide flood. Fine, were there people all over the world? Well, the answer is clearly no, there weren't because Noah was sort of in the beginning at least generations and generations after Adam and Eve and all these things, but we don't really think that there were settlements in North America or South America or in Australia at that point. There may have been animals living on those, on those parts of the world, but they certainly weren't people. So if there weren't people, there were probably not a whole lot of animals that migrated that far either. So we're talking about this idea that all the animals of the earth, and we're thinking of every single species that ever existed all over the world, came and lived on this ark. I think that that's not even what a, a literal flood account of the whole world would suggest. Um, so that's one thing. The second thing though is this, is that it's quite possible that the flood was just local. And the reason why I say that is because what was the flood's purpose? To judge human humanity, right? Where was humanity? It wasn't in Madagascar. It wasn't in Australia. It was in Mesopotamia. It was in this area. So if the whole world was flooded, it's clearly, obviously, one could say, I'm not saying it's obviously saying this, I'm saying you could obviously interpret it as saying everywhere where there were people. So the, the earth floods in an area where there's species of certain kinds that come onto the ark, and it doesn't have to be every single species in the whole world. It doesn't have to be every species of butterfly in South America, because there's no people down there. So that's a certain possibility as well, is that that ark could have fit only the number of animals required in that area that was going to be flooded in the first place. Because why would you take care of and bring up animals that weren't even killed? They can flourish all on their own. So that's another possibility as well. But there's also the, the, the interpretation that I think Noah was a real person. I think that the, the flood was a real event. And that um, what you're getting is the lesson out of this is that God is, despite our wickedness, oft returning to his mercy and his redemption. So that's the message of the Noah story. The particulars of it, I think, can be interpreted because the scripture gives us a wide berth to go where the evidence leads. Now, what I want to say to you, Ryan, is that because the scripture allows us to go where the evidence leads, it doesn't pigeonhole us into one little thing. We have to be afraid of every little discovery. It allows a Christian to be open-minded to wherever the evidence leads. The problem is, is that this is in distinction to what's called philosophical naturalism. Philosophical naturalism says there can only be naturalistic explanations for history and phenomenon, which means that if you're an atheist and you're a philosophical naturalist, you are not open to wherever the evidence leads. You say, this is the only evidence I will admit into court, and you're very close off to this. So what I would say to you is, when you read the Bible, read it for what it says. Don't impose on it what you want it to say, and I try my hardest not to do that either, but don't also be afraid that the latest scientific discovery might contradict what it says because it allows a wide berth I think in some senses God and his providence has anticipated our discoveries and our errors. We're going to come to scientific errors all the time. So I hope that helps. There's a po- there certainly are possibilities where you can take scientific evidence and and fit it into what the Bible actually says, but oftentimes the science is just wrong. It will end up being wrong. In fact, I'll give you an example of this. You know what the Burgess Shale is? You heard about the Cambrian explosion? So the Cambrian explosion, there's this thing called the Burgess Shale. The Burgess Shale is a very large collection uh, of fossils that come from this very large area in Canada. And what they found in the, in the Cambrian period was that there was tons of fossils. I mean. Millions of fossils and all these things, not one transitional form. All we saw was new species suddenly. All these new species—they were suddenly new species all over the place—which suggests that they were created spontaneously or even specially. They didn't evolve over time, and they didn't see. Uh, and, and it was a, it was a pretty wide window of time. There was millions of years within the Cambrian, uh, the Cambrian period, but we don't see a whole lot of speciation, which suggests that Darwin's tree is actually upside down. We don't see more and more speciation, we see less and less over time. So there are all these species, and as they go to extinct more and more, we're seeing less and less species existing. Now maybe we'll find out that no, there's more and more as we discover more and more species, maybe. But my point in bringing up the Cambrian explosion is, we see suddenly all these species. And it upends Darwin's theory that we should see all these transitional forms. We have a similar one in China, a similar shale, where we saw all these evidence of just sudden um, speciation. So it seems to suggest that maybe there's not all this, you know, biological diversity um, that sprouts from one, but maybe the biological diversity is being culled through um, extinctions. Now, I'm open to wherever the evidence leads. If I'm proven wrong about this, great, fantastic. But the Bible allows me to be proven wrong about this. But right now, I remain skeptical because the evidence it just ain't there. Hope that helps. Yep. Thank you, Ryan.
1: Not a quick question, but just a quick comment about that. There's a book called Evolution 2.0 uh, by Perry Marshall. Mm-hmm. It spends about 500 pages on this topic, mm-hmm. and he has a 10 million dollar X prize for people to figure out answer a burning question that's in that book on this topic. Yeah. And um, uh, he's a Christian, and anyway, it's a huge topic, but I just want to throw that out yep. there for anybody, especially yep. whoever asked that yep. question.
0: Yep. I would also recommend there's a couple other good books. Um, there's a great book called Navigating Genesis by Hugh Ross, where he goes and he shows that the Genesis account one by one in the the sequence of the way the Bible describes the Earth's creation, if you understand the Hebrew correctly, actually is compatible with the way we understand the universe and the Earth itself actually formed. Um, It's remarkable. Navigating Genesis, I would recommend that one. I would also recommend um, books by uh, Stephen Meyer. Darwin's Doubt is a good one, and Signature in the Cell is a good one as well. All right, another question? All right, let's do it.
2: Hey, Abdu. Hi. Um, get into the mic. Get into the mic. There get you go. into it. Okay. Um, sometimes I find the why, did, why would God do this question to be some of the hardest ones to answer. Yeah. But a question that I've been asked that I struggle with more than anything to answer is, first God creates Adam and Eve, puts them in the garden. They're fine. says, don't touch the tree. They don't. But then the serpent shows up. Mm-hmm. Now, God knows what's about to happen. He knows what's going to happen then. He knows what's about to happen thousands of years into the future. Yeah. So God allows, for some reason, the serpent to come in, tempting Adam and Eve, knowing they will fall. Yeah. Then knowing that their offspring will fall, that sin will occur, that he will destroy the human race, except known as family. And ultimately, all the way down to when Jesus said that, you know, narrow is the path to salvation, and few are those that find it. wise the path to destruction? Yeah. So God goes to all this trouble to create the garden, put Adam and Eve in it, allow Satan to come in, only to know that, at least if I'm interpreting that passage correctly, mm-hmm. that the vast majority of human beings will ultimately one day not be with God, mm-hmm. whether they'll be in hell, whether they be, you know, however you want to describe that. Right. The math seems difficult to understand.
0: Yeah. Can yeah. Can you comment on that? Sure. Yeah. Great question. Um, so next question. Um, no, that's a great question. It really is. I've thought about this one a lot, actually. I really have thought about it a lot. A um, couple of things. Uh, there's so much in that question. There's the questions of, uh, does foreknowledge mean foreordination? Does God actually cause these things if he foreknows them? And then, of course, the thing you started off with, it was, it's a why would God question. Um, so here's what I often say to why would God questions. And by the way, that is the most frequently uh, stated sort of three words that precede any question I get on theology is why would God? And so my most frequently stated response is this. I don't always know. And and no one does because a why would God question is asking me to crawl inside the mind of the infinite and say, hey, I think I figured out why you did this. And it's just impossible for me to do this. I'm in no position. And by the way, the questioner, and I'm not saying you, but if a skeptic brings it up, they're in no position to say there's no way God would. Because, like, again, you don't know. You, have, you, you are living literally living in a finite, very finite mind. We're having the hardest time figuring out how planes actually fly. Um, yet they fly, and we do it anyway. Um, so how are we going to understand how all these things work if we're having the hardest time? I mean, you're very well uh, understand. We're, we, we have a, such a small understanding of how the brain works. Let alone how the um, the universe itself works, or why would God do such things? So those those questions are valid and they're good search questions. But I think, in light of the skeptic, I don't think that the kind of thing that should debunk anything in terms of uh, our belief in God. Now, go back to, to direct you to your question. So first, God knowing that Adam and Eve would do what they did when Satan comes around, it's not actually it's, so. It is Satan who tempts them. But the, the, the ability for them to fall is already in them. See, Adam and Eve are created innocent. They're not created perfect. They're created innocent. And so what happens is, this is what I fundamentally believe, is that Adam and Eve are created with a certain truth. And that truth is they were meant to be with God. That's the reason for all of our existence. It's not a mystery. The meaning of life is not that hard to figure out. You are meant to be with God. That's it. It's all, that's, that, that's the whole thing. Go home. Um, uh, that's the purpose of life. They were told, you are in this garden to work it, to be with me. God walks and talks with them in the cool of the day, as it were. In order to have that true relationship with God, there has to exist the possibility that they could reject God. So in allowing the tree of of the knowledge of good and evil to exist in the garden in the first place, he is implanting there a choice, me or not me. And the reason why he allows that is so that they have free will, so that true love can actually exist now because they're not perfect they're not morally perfect but morally innocent the potential will always exist for them to fail and eventually they do now we don't know how long they lived with that tree and were never tempted by it at all we have no idea how long that was it could have been billions of years it could have been five minutes i don't know but they didn't they weren't tempted by it then satan comes along and he plays on their preferences. So the rule was, you are meant to be with God. Their preference was, I want to be God. And so Satan says, did God really say? And he misquotes God, and then they misquote God back. They actually, if you notice the story, they actually add more rules than God allowed. God said, don't eat it. They said, we can't even touch it. He never said that. And so what they did was, they imposed their sovereignty on God. That's the original sin. That's the inherent sin all of us have as we impose our sovereignty on God's will. Um, So then Satan says, I got you. God knows that in the day you eat of it, you will be like him. And he already knows they want to because they already added more rules to God's rules than God did himself. So he knows that and he's got them. And that's when the fruit suddenly became desirous for food. What I'm saying is, is that God knows this is going to happen, but he creates a world in which, and this is, I think, something we can easily see is possible, that God creates a world in which the maximum number, and it could be a small number, but it is the maximum number of free-willed creatures will freely choose to be in relationship with him, which means there's going to be those who freely reject him. Now, how the math ratios actually work out, I don't know, but it certainly seems to me, at least possible, that God could have created a world with four people. That could have been it, four people, and one of them would have chosen not him. But that means that only three people will be in heaven instead of the billions who will be in heaven now. So instead of making it a ratio issue, we should think about it as a quantity issue, is that God sets up a world where maybe the reason why I choose, freely choose to accept God's grace and his justice and his mercy and his unmerited mercy for me is because there are people who don't. And because of their actions, I see my own need for a savior. So narrow is the gate, not because I'm perceptive and I'm smart and I figured out where the gate actually is. It's because of, the, of human nature and the way it works is that it has to work out such that the gate is narrow because in order for there to be a gate at all, there's got to be another one. And that one leads to destruction. So I think that that's at least plausible. Now, is that philosophically true? Yeah. Is it psychologically comforting? Not really because you're thinking about all these people, these poor people who either have never heard of God or heard of the, uh, the Savior, and they're, they go to hell because of that. Here's the thing. People don't go to hell, and this is an important part of it. People don't go to hell because they believe the wrong thing. People go to hell because they trust the wrong person, and they trust themselves, and God provides a Savior. So Paul says, that God has written on the fleshy tablets of all of our hearts the law. We have the moral law. Everybody, whether you're a Christian or a Jew or anybody in the world, we have this moral law on our hearts. And I think that that's true. I mean, there's a reason 95% of the world is incurably religious. Because we recognize there's something wrong with the world, something wrong with us. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And we recognize that we need a path that's better than this. All of us recognize that's why religion even exists in the first place. So... We recognize this, every human being does. And of their own free will, they can either say, I need someone who's not me to save me from me, or I can invent a system where there's all these rules, and if I obey those rules, I will justify myself. And the thing is, we all know this too, we keep failing our own standards. I mean, I don't know, I haven't memorized by heart, but there is this poet from a Hindu background, he's a Hindu guy, uh, Takuram is his name, and he writes this poem, about how he's asking God to forgive him because he cannot measure up. That's interesting all by itself because he recognizes his his sinful state and his need for a savior. So I think that in answer to your question, wide is the path that leads to destruction and God knows it ahead of time, not because God wants it to be that way, because the Bible says that God wants that everyone should be saved. And not one of these little ones should perish, but wide is the path, not, prescriptively, God didn't prescribe it to be that way. God is describing the fact that people choose to go through a wide gate. And I think that's how I deal with it, is that I don't understand the math ratio exactly, but I do understand that God has created a world where freedom exists, and this is the only possible world, I believe, that this many people would get saved, but it has to be because this many people don't. Now, here's how I think about it. And this is all speculation on my part. And so I have to give you this as a, as, a, as a caveat, because I don't like to speak, especially not even shout, when the Bible does not speak. If the Bible's silent, I try to stay silent on this. But the Bible does talk about rewards in heaven and rewards in hell. It, uh, or sorry, or punishments in hell. So there's levels of rewards in heaven, and there's levels of punishment in hell. The Bible speaks about that. Jesus himself speaks about that. So if the, wi- the gate is wide, OK? if we're thinking about it solely in a numbers game, is that this many go to heaven and this many go to hell. Seems unfair. What if the reality is this many who go to heaven experience an unparalleled bliss that is so much greater in its qualitative nature, in its, in its um, potency, that the bliss, that even the person who goes into heaven smelling like smoke, you know, they have a deathbed conversion. Even that person's bliss, is far greater than the worst sinner's punishment. Now the ratio is different, isn't it? Because the number of people who go to heaven, if you add up, sort of if you gave bliss points, you know, the number of bliss, so let's say five people and the whole world go to heaven, but each person's bliss is infinite and a billion people go to hell and all of their bliss is like 0.5 or sorry, all of their uh, suffering is 0.5. This is already better on a proportionate level. So I think that we judge it based on numbers as opposed to the experience. So it could be that hell isn't as bad as heaven is good. And I, gotta, I, think, I think that's right. I think that hell isn't as bad as heaven is good, but it is bad. So that's how I deal with the ratios, not on a quantitative level, but on a qualitative level, but understanding that why would God, maybe because this is the only way it could work. Thank you, excellent question. Thank you. Hope that was somewhat clear. <laughs> Another question, please. <laughs> so for, for, my, for my feeble brain, there's many things in the Bible and in Christianity that defy logic. Okay. Um, and, you know, the Trinity, free will, predestination, lots of things like that. But the one that I, that I have the most trouble with is eternity. Okay. When I start thinking about eternity, I have to go somewhere else. <laughs> okay. Because I, I just can't think about it. Yeah. And I would like to hear what you feel about that. So what, 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 what about it? If, uh, tell me your name. Yep. What's uh, your name? Kevin. 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 Kevin, what about eternity is mind-boggling? Understand- is, it, is it contradictory? or is it, is it, Do you think it's contradictory or do you think that it is just hard to understand? Hard to understand. Just okay. thinking about something without end. Yeah. Like how, that's why I have to go somewhere else. Yeah. Because when I think about it, I can't. I can't go there. Other yeah. things that are hard, like the Trinity, thinking about that, mm-hmm. I, I can somewhat mm-hmm. wrap my head around it. Yeah. Um, but for eternity, it is mind-boggling for me. Yeah. And yes. That's, yeah, what you think about that? Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, Kevin, I, I'd say this to you. Um, I'm glad it's mind-boggling to you because it's mind-boggling to me. Um, and the reason why it's mind-boggling is uh, so you and I live in a state of time. We live in that state of time. Now. Like I said, if you go to Big Bang Cosmology and the standard model for the creation of the universe, we understand that time is a finite quantity. It actually was created. So you remember this in geometry when you, were, you learned about lines and rays? So a line it was something that went on into infinity that way and that way. So it has infinite uh, length in this positive direction and infinite length in the, in the negative direction. A ray is something that starts at a point and has infinite direction in one way. That's time. Time is an infinite direction in one way but it doesn't have an infinite direction in the back because infinity or eternality of if actual infinites is impossible. So here's an example of what I mean. Um, you take a hotel. Or let's say, um, that's Hilbert's Hotel. I'll talk about the library. The is a little easier. So let's say we have an infinite library, a library that never ends. It's got endless shelves. And we have endless books on all those shelves. Okay? And then every other book, so the, the odd-numbered books are black. The even-numbered books are red. How many red books do you have? An infinite number of red books, right? How many black numbers of books do you have? An infinite number. Now let's say we removed all of the red books. How many books do you have left? An infinite number. But wait, I was taught that quantity minus same quantity equals zero. So the problem is when you have actual infinites, it actually doesn't make any mathematical sense. So actual infinites don't make sense, so you can't go actually infinitely in the past, which is why I think that there's a good reason to believe that there's not an infinite universe. But eternity isn't about quantity. Eternity is about a state of being. So, for example, um, when we think about the universe now and the fact that you're existing, you're here now, right? Here we are now. If you were to say, "What caused you?" you'd go to your parents. What caused your parents? Well, their parents, and what caused their parents? Their parents. You keep going back and back and back and back and back and back, and then what caused what caused the earth and these kinds of what caused the universe? And you can going back and back and back at some point you have to stop because you have to get to now. So think about this. If you had a, uh, remember in math when you had these lines where you had positive numbers and negative numbers, remember that headache? Um, And so if you want to get to one, if you wanted to start at 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 the back end of it and you said there's an infinite number of negative numbers, how could you ever count up to one if there's an infinite number going back? You can never get to now, but here we are. So there is a finite number of instances in the past, which means that, etern- that, 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 that time stops at some point. But what's beyond time? That's eternity. Now, do you understand that? No. Do you know why? Because you're a creature created in time. So if you understood eternity, you would therefore have God's mind. Now, here's, here's the analogy I give. Explain dry to a fish. You know, it just, it's just not a concept. In fact, explain wet to a fish, really. But, um, uh, but what it's like to exist outside of a body of water, you know, they don't understand that concept, partly because they have no brain, but the other reason is is because even if they did, they don't live in a a, a non-water existence. So the idea of dry is almost like mind, it would be mind boggling to a fish. Yet we know dry exists, why? Because we're a higher being than the fish. We exist in wet and in dry. You can walk into the ocean, you can swim in it, and you can step outside and towel off. And you understand both concepts because you're a higher order being. Therefore, if God is a higher order being, and we already know that time has a finite past, So then we know that anything called eternity actually exists because something has to exist beyond time. I don't know what it's like that it exists, I know. What it's like, I don't. Because I don't have that kind of a mind, and neither do you. So it is mind-boggling. Kevin, you should take comfort in the fact that it's mind-boggling because if you could understand eternity, then your God is too small. So he doesn't defy our logic. He transcends our understanding. That's what I would say, is take comfort in the fact that your God does not defy logic, but he does transcend understanding. I think that's an important point. Excellent question. Thank you very much. Abdu, this will be the last question. Okay. And it's this.
1: What changed in your life when you went from being raised as a Muslim to where now you're a Christian and kind of what changed spiritually in your life? Sort of talk about the different realities
0: between those two. Yeah, great question. Um, So you know, this is the kind of question where typically when you hear this story, you hear about how terrible and how selfish and how awful the person was before they came to Christ and then they became this different person. not that much change outwardly happened with me, it is its initially, uh, because as a Muslim, I wanted to be a good Muslim. So I wasn't smoking, wasn't drinking, wasn't running around having sex with girls before marriage. I wasn't doing any of that stuff. So I, I actually prided myself on being a pretty good kid. Did I make mistakes? Yeah, I was human. But I wasn't running around doing this and that and all that. What did change for me was this, is that my level of understanding of the pride I took in my own religiosity, in my own sort of pseudo-morality, where I thought, man, everyone is just, this country is just going to hell in a handbasket compared to the morality that Abdu Murray exhibits. That melted away because I suddenly saw my sin before me. And though I didn't do the outwardly most obvious sins, the things that were really captivating my heart were things that I shouldn't have been. And the, the, the selfishness that I thought wasn't there was suddenly actually there. And that's before I even came to Christ because I think God actually quickened those things in my mind. Like, you realize how much of a sinner you actually are? And then when I became a believer, there was the gratitude about it and everything had fundamentally changed for me in that I saw myself in a different light. But here's the important thing. I saw other people in a different light. I used to stand in quite a bit of moral judgment of people. Because like, look, all my cohorts, all the kids in high school were getting drunk on the weekends. All my friends in college were getting high on the weekends and having sex and doing this and doing that. And I thought, you poor, hellbound people. If you only embraced Islam and were as good a person as me, God would love you. God would love you. When I became a Christian, I suddenly realized, you know, we have an Arabic phrase. Arabic phrases are always more colorful than American phrases. Um, so there's an the American phrase, we're all in the same boat. You know, we're all in this together kind of a thing. The Arabic phrase is which means we're all in the same wind. The connotation is we all smell the same stink. Um, Our phrases are much more colorful. Um, I suddenly realized we all smell the same stink. In fact, that stink is something we generate. We all generate the same stink. And I, I saw God as someone who is infinitely perfect and myself as far from him. And I didn't think of that way before. I thought of him as great, but somewhere inside of me, I harbored this sort of self-righteousness that it was suddenly shed. And my ability to see people was far different now because I didn't, no, no longer was wanting to, and I still had judgmentalness in, you know, in my mind and in my, in my heart because I'm a human being. But I was able to combat it and fight it more often and see the innate, in the innate beauty of every human person and also the innate ugliness of every human person, including this human person, meaning myself. That changed very much for me. Things had changed how I saw people and how I saw God and His graciousness. You know, every surah of the Qur'an, 114 chapters, which are called surahs, every surah except for one begins with the phrase bismillah ar-Rahman rahim In the name of God, the beneficent or the compassionate, the merciful. Compassion and mercy are the two most common words used of God. But here's the thing in a system where you have to prove your worth by following the rules, how compassionate and how merciful does he have to be? But understanding, finally in my own mind, my own sin before him, I realized that he's gotta be infinitely compassionate and infinitely merciful to allow one person into heaven, and that one person, at least one person, is me. That was awe-inspiring. The awe level to which I actually approached God And my own existence and other people heightened way so much. Let me just leave you with this. Um, There's this, uh, one of the most revered Muslims in all of Islam, especially in Shia Islam, is the Imam Ali. Ali was the uh, the son-in-law and cousin of Muhammad, the first male convert to Islam. And Shia believed he was going to, you know, uh, succeed Muhammad in uh, leading the nation of the Muslims. And he wrote uh, a bunch of sermons, and they were compiled together in a book. And one of those uh, sermons goes like this, and they're very short, but they're little pithy sayings. And he says this, among believers, there are three. There are those who worship God to attain his heaven. That is the worship of the merchant. There are those who worship God to avoid his hell. That is the worship of the slave. But there are those who worship God out of gratitude. That is the worship of a free and noble person. Here's the irony of that. In Islam, you're doing good works so that God will have mercy on your shortcomings, and he will let you into heaven, or you will avoid his hell. So in Islam, you're either a merchant or you're a slave in Christianity, in the gospel. When I saw God for who he truly was, and I saw my sin before him, I recognized a God who dies for me and pays the debt for me, so I don't have to pay it myself, which is impossible anyway. So what I realized was that in the irony of ironies, that this description of a merchant or a slave describes every other person. The gratitude, the grateful, free, and noble worship describes the worship of a Christian who worships because not what he can get, but what God has already given him. And that's what changed in my life. Thank you all so much for giving me some time. I appreciate it.